John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 122.jb4024 certificate number 47159 billy the pygmy hippo That's adorable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> just saying the name, right? Have you optioned uh, this to Nickelodeon? I just had a vision of a sweatshirt with a little pygmy hippo on it that says Billy the Pygmy Hippo. I think I could probably sell 100,000 of them. You need to write a song. You need to write a theme song. Billy the Pygmy Hippo. <laughs> it's so like I can has cheeseburger. <laughs> it seems like he might be like the lead character in, in some kind of... Uh, suspiciously good for you William F. Buckley kind of kid show where he learns lessons about integrity yeah. or, um, you know, how to start a small business. Yeah. Billy, the pygmy hippo, uh, helps you learn math with the computer games. It's exactly what it <laughs> exactly. is. It's like, it's like I downloaded an app that's educational. How did you learn to touch type? Well, <laughs> Billy, the pygmy hippo taught me. And the, the kids are all rolling their eyes. Oh, do we have to play Billy, the pygmy hippo? Yes, kids. They thought it was fun for one second. Yeah. It's like when you tell the kids, Hey, we're going to do some magic tricks with math. <laughs> <laughs> I have a book that tries to be fun for math, uh, you know, fun math education for my daughter. Yeah. And uh, one of the activities was like, solve these equations. And then there's a table that will tell you, once you solve this equation, what color you should color the area. And she was like, oh, this is cool. And so she started doing the math. Yeah. But the pictures had like big, big portions of sky that were divided up into 50 different little questions. And she's like, it's blue again. It's blue. And then she just looked at the picture. She's like, all of this is blue. I think you can look at, like, every time I see one of those on a placemat, you can look at it and say, yeah, that's going to be a cat driving a car or whatever. Like, nobody ever can disguise the outline of a cat driving a car. Yeah, come on. Give kids a little credit. Well, but who is Billy the Pygmy Hippo? Not a, a Nickelodeon character. Well, there's no, every reason he could be a, a, a Nickelodeon character. He has all of the great traits. He's he was a, a breeding stud, uh, like a lot of Nickelodeon characters. Yeah, yeah. like Dexter's Lab <laughs> or whatever. Well, so you famously, and I hate to keep pitching all of your your other products. Oh, I hate when you hype my for profit ventures John, I, I, on this free podcast. I, I hate it too. I don't know why I allow it. But uh, you famously wrote a book for teens, let's say, or preteens. What are you, your books are targeted to kids? I'm sorry, your children's books are targeted to kids yeah, it's between middle grade readers. Yeah, eight eight year old to to twelve year old. Yeah, I think third to fifth grade is yeah. the sweet spot. I, I like how you said it. it was fa I famously did this. The word famously is doing a lot of work in that sense. Yeah, you famously <laughs> wrote famously wrote these books that sold famous amounts. That's because everything I do is is famously. Like if I sit typing on my yeah on my keyboard, I'm doing it famously. You are. You're fa very famous. Of the two of us, the more famous of the two. I don't of think us. so. Like you're famously wearing pants during this show, unlike our last one, which is exciting. Right. I famously did not wear pants. <laughs> Uh, you famously wrote a book for kids about U.S. presidents. I did. I loved presidential trivia as a kid. I don't know why, but kids love trivia about the presidents. Maybe, yep. maybe the mystique of it, like 
what goes on behind those uh, whitewashed marble monuments, you know, like corridors of power. I have a placemat with all of the U.S. presidents up to Obama uh, that my daughter uses sometimes as her placemat. And my, she has lots of questions about them. My book is an Obama era book. So, yeah, the end paper ends with President 44 Obama. There Literally no room uh, to add another president should there ever be one. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Too bad. Future editions will. This is my tragically obsolete book. <laughs> But uh, but one of the presidents that my daughter is the most interested in is Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> you just I was take. just drinking water. <laughs> you know what kids love? Calvin Coolidge. How many actual spit takes have I seen in a lifetime? It doesn't work on a podcast because no one can see the spit take. Yeah, they could hear it though. Uh, Calvin Coolidge, famous uh, Republican uh, American president from the early part of the 20th century. Uh, famously unexciting president. Stick in the mud. That's right. Uh, Silent Cal was his nickname. This is the apocryphal story about the woman saying, I was, I bet 20 bucks that I could get you to say three words, President Coolidge. And he said, you lose, <laughs> you lose. bitch. <laughs> he, I, he did not say no, bitch. Because then she would have won. Yeah, that was not in the parlance of the time. Uh, right, another another uh, famous anecdote was when Dorothy Parker was told that Calvin Coolidge had died. She said, how can you tell? <laughs> uh, he was uh, known in his own time as a reticent. By the way, looking at, look at us laughing at these 1920s jokes like a bunch of old men. You know what? Their jokes were funny then. Jokes were funnier in the 20s. They were a little funnier because they didn't, they didn't incorporate a fart element, which all contemporary jokes seem to need to do. Every time I take my kids to see some whatever kids entertainment, some cartoon, every single trailer has a fart joke yeah. as if by federal regulation. Yeah. For hundreds and hundreds of years, like the scatological was, you know, relegated to the pub. Uh, the bar room, and now it's just like family fun entertainment. Well, you know, I don't know if it's true to say that uh, it's been for thousands of years. Like no, no, Aristophanes no. plays. People like poop. There's just sure. some guy with. There'll just be some guy with diarrhea. You know, that'll just be his his character trait. But we, you know, definitely the last. Let's say 150 years. 100, 150 years of human history <laughs> were kind of artificially whitewashed by the Victorians and then the the production code in Hollywood. So we, we, we tried to kill the fart joke. Like it's like killing all the, you know, if everybody with smallpox, uh, doesn't pass it on. Right. And you've eradicated smallpox. So we but thought we had eradicated the poop joke. But fart you joke. cannot eradicate the fart joke because let me just go on record and say farts are funny. Dorothy Parker farting would be funnier than her, um, zinging Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> but here we are unable to record whether Dorothy Parker ever farted or not, but she know. did zing Calvin Coolidge for being boring. And, you know, we think of, uh, we think of his tenure as being a kind of exciting time in American public life, right? He was president. Tell me why. Well, he was president during the roaring twenties, ah. right? 1923 to 1929. He got out right before the crash. He's, he's a, like a Reagan era type, a deregulating small government Republican who watches the fun and the good times mount and then leaves at just the right time. Right. And during the Reagan years, Coolidge was rehabilitated because Reagan used him as an example. No, literally, he yeah. shocked him with electricity and brought him <laughs> back to life and he would wander <laughs> the White House. Saying nothing. <laughs> yeah. How, How could, could they tell? tell? <laughs> uh, but he was... I think in his own time, pretty respected as a, as what we now would think of, uh, he wouldn't even qualify as a Republican. Now he would, he would, he, I don't even think he would qualify well, as he, a conservative Democrat. He didn't have a reality show. So that would be tricky. Uh, he was famously very pro civil rights president at a time when being, uh, when civil rights didn't even really have that name yet. Um, he gave a speech at Howard University, and this is immediately after Woodrow Wilson, who was a pretty racist president. He wouldn't go near Howard University. No, he He'd wouldn't. roll up his windows if he was on the same <laughs> block as Howard University. Or, yeah, wouldn't go to that part of D.C. But so Coolidge was, was a man of few words. Like, hilariously, he was so frugal, he insisted that they rent rather than buy. And throughout his entire life, his family lived in rented homes. <laughs> Including the White House. He thought, he thought, well, that was least. He thought that buying a house was like an extravagance. 
He was a kind of a stern New England right. uh, a Puritan type, right? Right, right. and and practiced a, I guess what you would think of as a, the purest form of republicanism, socially liberal or agnostic, and economically conservative, like small C conservative, just like government. The government is best, which governs least style of conservative, without without all the excesses that we think of attending the contemporary version kind of, the, of the that. the cultural baggage of that. Right. Because think how easy your job would be as president if your idea is that the president shouldn't do much. Well, or that I think the government be, shouldn't do much. Yeah, I think I'd become a small C conservative house president just out of laziness. <laughs> I, I'd be like, yeah, I don't believe the government has any rights for me to go uh, launch that battleship. I'm just going to be uh, on the internet. You know, the thing about laissez-faire is the first word is lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Putting the lazy back. That was worthy affair. of Dorothy Parker. That would have made her laugh. We're, we don't really have an Algonquin round table here. We have a rectangular table. Yeah, an but, Algonquin square table. But boy, we sure crack each other up with our witticisms. Well, and this was a witty time. And also a time where there were a lot of great, I guess what you think of as the 20s were sort of the tail end of this great era of American industrialism where you had your Henry Fords and your Thomas Edison's and the railroads and the highways had expanded to... Everything's expanding. You know, the electric light and um, rock and roll. <laughs> no, it was a little pre-rock and roll. Marty McFly having not yet invented rock and roll. But jazz music uh, booming in this time. It's a, a post-war economy. And Coolidge, uh, although a reticent man, and, and I guess this isn't incompatible, was an animal lover. And, you know, they say about uh, sociopaths that they love children and animals. Wait, I thought serial killers <laughs> killed animals or something. Uh, serial killers kill animals. But sociopaths love animals? Well, it's one way of, I guess, telling who is, um, if you see someone who cannot interact with grown-up people but are attracted uh, to children and animals, it's a sign of maladjustment. Uh, Coolidge not maladjusted. He made it all the way to the office of the presidency. Although I guess maladjustment is no longer a uh, contraindication of being the president of the United States. You know, Coolidge actually was uh, very lazy, by the way, just to get back to that. Like he would sleep 11 hours a night and then take an afternoon nap. Like he, oh. he took it very literally. And he would like to lie in bed and have someone rub Vaseline into his bald head. Oh, I admire him so much, even more than I did before. He's probably our greatest president. You know, I'm, I am a, I am a very liberal politically a, a liberal person and socially liberal and, and economically liberal. I am the classic example of the big government Democrat, the tax and spend Democrat. Uh, but Coolidge, I've, you know, I've always admired him as a president. He seems like, um, he's definitely a throwback to a time when you could be a president that had your head massaged in a non-sexual way, presumably. <laughs> And sleep 11 hours a day? Like, that's the kind of president I would be. Well, if you want a president who's just always sleeping and doing nothing, I've got some good news for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's no longer a contraindication. Uh, so Coolidge was, um, you know, was a... He liked animals. Is, he, that, is this from his, like, country upbringing? Uh, he's a farm kid, right? I mean, you can't be named after John Calvin as he was and not come from some... But a Massachusetts farmer. He's not a... Uh, He's not like some he's farmer. Not so, he's not some backwoods Appalachian. No, he's not from the American West. He's like a, he's a small government farmer. <laughs> some kind of a gabled house, right? A, a, some kind of gabled farmhouse. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I imagine that his Massachusetts upbringing was kind of like John Adams's, although uh, separated by a century. And fewer wigs. Fewer wigs. the wigs would separate you from the Vaseline fingers. Mm, Vaseline fingers. Vaseline fingers. Um, who would you describe, I, I think you know the answer, who would you describe as the president of the United States most associated with animal husbandry? <laughs> it's got to be uh, Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. Like even after he was in office, he would go around the world doing safaris. He, he and his sons, I believe, shot the first panda. They, oh. <laughs> a real, a real animal lover. Shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they finally tracked down the elusive, the most dangerous game of all. Okay, hold that pose. <laughs> uh, well, you know, TR was from an era of naturalist that still like shot and stuffed there. That's how you appreciated nature by yeah. by bringing it back so everyone could admire it in 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 you know your Georgetown 
townhouse. Yeah, or you put it in the Natural History Museum in a, in a diorama that showed the mighty panda with its <laughs> teeth bared. Uh, uh, is that true? Are there still taxidermy specimens in the in the Natural History Museum today that came in the Smithsonian that came from? Oh, absolutely, Teddy Roosevelt. I think you're right. Absolutely, and uh, and often I think in those early days of taxidermy, they were. I mean, even as recently as the 1980s, uh, taxidermists were still posing their sculptures. So they're uh, doing something a little scarier than they were yeah, right. in, in their final moments. There's that famous Far Side cartoon where the bear is drinking out of the pond and the guy shoots him and then later you see him ah. like, the, like the polar bear in the Anchorage airport. I can't take my daughter to natural history museums because they've always still got all this threadbare taxidermy. It's like half the place and she just doesn't want to see it. It's, no. To her, it's like a... It's like a morgue. zombie movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't visited it already or Googled it already, but please go look at bad taxidermy on Google. It really is a, it's a nightmare. You seem confident <laughs> this will survive the apocalypse. It's a nightmare version. Well, it may be that, that all that survives the apocalypse are uh, taxidermied animals that are reanimated. I hope there's bad taxidermy of us doing this podcast. Like at this table. Can you imagine if the two of us were stuffed and placed at a at a facsimile of this table in a museum? I'm leaning into the mic, <laughs> like, you know, righteously pointing into the air, and you're doing the far side. Ah! I don't have pants on. <laughs> you have no pants. The most horrifying thing of all. Uh, but during this era, there was, um, in American public life, a group called the Millionaires Club. Which was... Like there was literally a club called the Millionaires Club? The Millionaires club? club. It was a very small club. Uh, it was a club that had three members, uh, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and Harvey Firestone. Harvey Firestone? Like Torch Song Trilogy? Harvey Firestone? <laughs> no, that's Firestein. Please buy my tires. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout harvey firestone uh was the progenitor of the firestone tire company and he was close personal friends with Henry Ford and Thomas Edison. And the three of them vacationed together. Um, Firestone's daughter married Ford's son. Really? Um, well, when the, when the rubber meets the road, huh? Oh, wow. Dorothy Parker is sitting straight <laughs> up in her grave and applaud slow clapping. She would have made like some kind of contraceptive <laughs> joke, but, um, and, and Thomas Edison was a millionaire, I guess. I guess selling his patents and an interest in General Electric and yeah, it seems like he didn't like being a millionaire wasn't his main focus. Right, I assume these were all going to be Rockefeller types. But. And and Edison was the eldest of the three of them. Uh, Firestone was the youngest. This seems like a plot point in like a National Treasure movie that these guys were getting together and running the world. Yeah, or some uh, some movie that takes place in the Natural History Museum with TR and a bunch of dinosaurs and then Hi Harvey Firestone. <laughs> yeah, get Harvey Firestein to play Harvey Firestone. Get taxidermy Robin Williams to do Teddy Roosevelt again. Oh, no. It's going to be great. Oh, no. Sorry, why don't you actually get back to the millionaires? Well, you know, in Firestone, uh, the Firestone Tire Company began in Akron, Ohio, which hilariously... If you can imagine this, have you ever been to Akron? I've never been to Akron. Akron's kind of a spectacular little uh, town of weirdness in Eastern Ohio. In Akron, the Firestone Tire Company, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, as well as the General Tire and Rubber Company and BF Goodrich, all were practicing their tire manufacturing there in Akron simultaneously. This can't be a coincidence, right? Is it the kind of thing where like we see in Silicon Valley that, you know, 
people leave Google and form baby Googles and it just becomes a center for that kind of thing? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's the only explanation for it because it's not like rubber is grown in Akron. You know how the University of Akron uh, sports teams are still called the Zips? Mm. The Akron Zips. Do you know why that is? No. Zips were a kind of rubber overshoe made by BF Goodrich. Like they have a rubber themed team name. Like they're named for a brand of galoshes. Wow. The rubber overshoes. <laughs> Look out for the fighting galoshes. Um, but Firestone became very, very wealthy and powerful in no small part because of his friendship with Henry Ford. Because when it was time to outfit the Model T with tires, Ford naturally uh, put Firestone tires on them because this guy was his, uh, his pal. Hook up a buddy. And when Henry Ford moved his manufacturing, or built a manufacturing plant in Long Beach, California, he encouraged Firestone to go out with him. And the two of them like out on a, on a, like a bro date. Walking arm in arm down the pier. Yeah. Henry Ford said, you know, I'm going to build this company out here in Long Beach. Why don't you build a Firestone company over here in neighboring Southgate, California, which he did. And it became like an enormous, I mean, he, he built the town basically. It's funny that Harvey Firestone essentially used to run America. He was, uh, he was one of the richest men in the country. I guess we've talked about the rubber barons who just had unstoppable, untamable wealth down in the Amazon. And there were American millionaires doing the same. This was the American version of it. And what Firestone did was went to Liberia, which as we've discussed on our Monrovia, Moravia, Moldova, Moldavia episode. Very good. Liberia was a, a country in Africa that was formed by repatriated American slaves who went back to Africa and formed their own nation. Mm -hmm. And Firestone went there and built the largest rubber plantation in the world. I assume this was kind of a, it's the way Americans will go to Costa Rica today, but not Honduras. That was kind of the America friendly, industry friendly part of Africa. Yeah, at the time, English was their language, but also it was an environment that was ideally suited to grow rubber. Mm. And they built a rubber plantation in a town called Harbel, which uh, is named for Harvey Firestone and his wife, Idabel. Uh, they combined their names in a portmanteau. And Very nice. It's called Harbel Liberia. Do you think that was the first Benefer style <laughs> power couple portmanteau in history? Yeah, probably. Harbel? No, I'm sure that, that I'm sure that we have other examples of that. Um, it could have been Ida V. No, I don't think anyone else did it. Like you never see, you never say like, oh, Caesar Patra is here. You always say Caesar and Cleopatra. Right. Well, it could. George and Martha Washington. They're not Jortha. And I wonder whether that was a Liberian innovation or whether <laughs> Harvey uh, suggested it himself. It doesn't seem in character with him. You seem like you know him well. Well, I just, uh, you know, I kind of think of myself as a, as an adjunct member of the Millionaires Club. I think uh, the uh, the rubber grown in Africa was not from rubber trees because, as we said, those had not yet been smuggled out of Brazil to dot the British Empire. But in Africa, you could milk rubber from rubber vines, hmm. which maybe didn't have some of the same advantages. But, you know, that's what led to the terrible excesses in the, you know, Belgian Congo and elsewhere where, you know, workers were literally being tortured and massacred in order to bring in the rubber. And Liberia was not immune to that. And in fact, even in two recent years, uh, the violent and abusive administration of Charles Taylor, uh, he nationalized or seized the Firestone plantation there in Harbell and Firestone, the Firestone company actually went in and negotiated with him and uh, reached an accommodation. This is, this is not long ago. This, this is, is not long 80, ago. So all. 80 years ago, uh, Harbell still existed and was where Firestone was getting its rubber. Uh, eight years ago. Yikes. I mean, even now. And they paid taxes to Charles Taylor's regime in order that he let them back in to run their tire plantation. So uh, they've been actually accused, Firestone Company's been accused of supporting Charles Taylor and, and you know, and also I guess they're tarnished with the, the brush of his murderous tenure. Yeah, they were being accused of collaborating and yeah. they're like, well, hey, no, we didn't. Look, if you like driving on your Firestone tires, I actually have a somewhat contentious relationship with Firestone. I got some work done on my car at one of their garages and uh, had a very bad experience. The manager was extremely rude and lame and they did not fix my car. Uh, and after multiple times taking it there and in very early days of Twitter, the first ever Twitter storm I did 
which was early on in the Twitter storm years, was uh, I spent an entire day ranting about Firestone. And they had some public relations person contact me and ask me to stop and, you know, tell us what. But they didn't have like a social media person because that type of thing didn't exist. It was only halfway through the day that somebody alerted them. And this person was like, please stop doing this. Like, what would you like? Can we make it up to you somehow? Would you like four free tires? And I was drunk on power and uh, just kept after him. So is this the new format of the... uh of the omnibus, we're just going to give bad Yelp reviews to the future. <laughs> Look, I, I I got my blood out of Firestone. I have no nothing against him anymore. But I went to Arby's yesterday, and they were very stingy with the cheese sauce on the beef and cheddar. <laughs> I still have a I'm sure a black mark next to my name when I go to Hilton hotels because I did a similar thing to the Hilton hotel chain at one point. I'm not a good person in many respects, especially on social media. But I do not use it to um, make customer service people. Miserable, I have I, to say. I don't do it anymore, although actually I did just do it recently. <laughs> said, said something bad about a company and their social media person contacted me and I was like, sorry, buddy. I'd rather I, have my grievance. I don't take filthy lucre from you. Uh, so Harvey Firestone. Harvey Firestone. In a gesture that it doesn't appear was meant to curry favor. And it seems that Calvin Coolidge, in particular of American presidents, was not someone that you could corrupt. He seems pretty incorruptible, partly because he's asleep half the day. <laughs> but also because he's a stern New England Protestant. Yeah, that's right. A stern New England Protestant. He's made of 80% hickory wood. <laughs> and it's very difficult even to carve your initials and the initials of your loved one into a hickory wood, <laughs> let alone to sway them politically. But Firestone gave as a gift to Coolidge, who even then was known for his love of animals. And by love of animals, I mean most of the animals that Coolidge had in his menagerie were dogs and birds, dogs and parakeets. But he did expand his animal purview a little bit to include, uh, I think a bobcat. Maybe, you know, better from your, from your book on presidents and their pets. Yeah, there was a bobcat. There was a, a, a lot of these were things he got as gifts. So I think there may have been some tradition even going back further than Coolidge of presenting the U.S. president with some exotic gift. Rather than just a candy bowl or a Fabergé egg, they would actually bring some aminal. Yeah, like the Marquis de Lafayette brought John Quincy Adams an alligator, mm. which he kept in a bath White House. A bathtub. Yeah, no, he did. He kept it in a bathtub by the East Room. There was just no. a, Yeah, there was an alligator in there for a while. How, how long could an alligator survive in a bathtub? Yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe this was like for a week or something huh. until John Quincy Adams realized the downside of having a alligator in the East room. But people would send president Coolidge, you know, he'd just get a, a, somebody would say, Hey, there's a crate of wallabies coming from Australia. And he'd have to call somebody in and be like, what is a wallaby? And they'd explain that it's like a small kangaroo. And he would be like, hmm. if you send somebody wallabies, do they come in a crate? Is that how you ship wallabies? Everything I know about this comes from Warner brothers cartoons, <laughs> you know, or, or something, you know, where Daffy duck or porky pig or Donald or somebody, you know, gets a crate, opens it up and then a kangaroo bounds out or a boxing or, gloves. Yeah, on. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or a hyena or, you know, so I just assumed that during the 1920s, exotic animals were just being shipped around the world in crates. That's how the Tasmanian devil got, uh, got into the American <laughs> yeah, Southwest. It could be a Tasmanian <clears throat> devil. Um, but in this case, Firestone gave as a gift to president Coolidge, a pygmy hippopotamus. Wow. Is that a, is that a small type of hippopotamus? It is. There are only two kinds of hippopotamus. There's the conventional normal hippopotamus, which is gigantic. Yeah. I'm a normie. I, I only like normcore hippopotami. Hippopotamuses. Which is it? Well, I think it's hippopotamuses. It's not just, it, are you sure it's not just two hippopotamus? Uh, well, let's get to the bottom of this because that guy that let's always yells at me about my Latin is going to be, he's going to have a very strong opinion here. That guy that thinks you pluralize badly. Yeah. Is it hippopotamus, hippopotamuses, or hippopotami? Let me get to the bottomus. <laughs> a bottomamus. So the plural is hippopotamuses mm -hmm. or hippopotami? I think hippopotamuses because, you know, this is the classic mistake you make about octopuses. It's not octopi because octopus is actually derived from the Greek rather than from the Latin. Do we, is that true of hippopotamus as well? I think hippopotamus is probably derived from the Latin because hippopotamuses were known uh, to the Romans. Well, it's hippo meaning horse mm -hmm. and uh, pot, P-O-T-A, pota is like uh, water. water. It's like potable water. It's, water like a, a, it's literally a river horse. 
because they looked at that and they thought, hey, this looks like a horse, except it's in a river. That thing that you always think when you see a hippo. It does not look like a horse at all. <laughs> no. Like what weird angle? <laughs> or was it just someone who had never seen a horse? It yeah, was, that's what it is. It was like Hannibal riding an elephant who's like, I've never seen a horse, but maybe mm, it's like this. I've heard about horses. Uh, the pygmy hippopotamus has a much smaller range. And... Uh, like creatively or, uh, <laughs> yeah, it can't sing as well as the, as the, uh, the conventional hippopotamus. It cannot play comedy. Uh, but it's, it's range is confined to very small pockets of West Africa. Mm. And it is a nocturnal creature. Really? That is adapted much more than the giant hippopotamus to living on land as well as in the water. I mean, it prefers to be, it kind of splits its time. Whereas the the larger hippopotamus spends most of its time in the water, doesn't prefer to be on land. And I guess even being a pygmy hippopotamus, it's probably still pretty big. I mean, a, a full-grown hippopotamus is probably, uh, I'm sorry, pygmy hippopotamus is probably six feet long, uh, as opposed to a full-grown regular hippopotamus, which is enormous. I mean, I, it's as big as a, it's bigger than a Ford F-250. I'm sorry to say to the F-250 drivers out there who think they have the biggest water horse around with their firestone tires. Yeah. It's a, uh, I mean, a big hippopotamus is, is big hippopotamus is big as the internet would say. That's what Reddit would say. But pygmy hippopotamus is pygmy. Pygmy hippopotamus is pygmy. But it's still a big boy. It's not like a teacup schnauzer. You can just hold in the crook of your arm. It's a, it's a 600 pound thing. Yeah, it's not like a pygmy uh, pig, like a, like a pet pig, mm. but although it is a 600 pound, six foot long hippopotamus, it went undiscovered in the West until the 19th century because they're so, um, the, unlike other hippopotamuses who live very, and when I say other, I mean normal, big, normie hippopotamuses who live together in big herds and are very social with one another, the pygmy hippopotamus is asocial, antisocial, and they do not prefer to be in the company of other hippopotamuses. In fact, when two male hippopotamuses come upon one another in the rye, they do not have a confrontation. They do the Pacific Northwestern thing, which is pretend that they don't see one another. That's what I would do. <laughs> right? Which is, I think, pretty, that's a pretty cool way. It's like seeing an acquaintance at the grocery store. Yeah. I'll just go down this aisle. Oh, no, he's still there. I will not go down that aisle. They're like, uh, they're like the robots from Westworld. <laughs> they just don't see things that don't comport with their programming. And so humans had never seen them. Well, West Africans had seen them, but that's a good point. Uh, but European uh, colonizers colonizers had not uh, had not documented uh, pygmy hippopotamus until the 19th century. Did you know that's true of mountain gorillas as well? Until 1902, the mountain gorilla was thought to be like a like a Pliny the Elder kind of myth. Really, like a Sasquatch? Yeah, like a like a, some kind of uh, mythical sea serpent, or yes, uh -huh. in, in this case, Sasquatch. Right, a sea serpent. Um, uh, but a mountain sea serpent it's or a Sasquatch. A, it's just in some inaccessible, hard to get to part of Central Africa. And that's probably true of the pygmy hippo too. It stays out of the way. Well, Liberia was uh, a nation from the, the mid 1800s, but obviously had been populated by human beings for many, many, many centuries. Um, but the word of the pygmy hippopotamus just didn't get out. And it, partly it's, they're, they're very hard to find. If you knew something cool, like there's a pygmy hippopotamus in our country, you wouldn't tell these white bozos either. No, that's right. Here <laughs> these guys are who are like, hey, come on, get on these boats. Ah, I need some more rubber. And you're like, well, I got to tell them about these hippopotamuses, but mm. ah, f <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, it's like Wakanda. They have massive hippo-free holograms they right. use to cover up the pygmy hippos. That's precisely what it's like. Uh, they had the technology to tell us about hippopot uh, hippo hippo pygmy hippopotamuses, but they did not. So the pygmy hippopotamus was a real novelty, and Firestone, being now the largest Western land owner in Liberia, sent a male pygmy hippopotamus by the name of Bill Billy, the hippopotamus, to Calvin Coolidge. Its full name, I believe, was. Do you, do you know this? It's William Johnson Hippopotamus. <laughs> Although that was a name that wasn't initially given to the hippopotamus, it became a thing that the newspapers started calling him William Johnson Hippopotamus. Why would you invent a middle name for a hippopotamus? I think that he oh, was... Oh boy, what a scoop! Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. 
Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start so billy was beloved uh coolidge did not keep him in a bathtub at the white house he because there's already an alligator in there. <laughs> you can't put him in the same bathtub uh there weren't that many bathtubs in the white house at the time this is before the big restoration of the White House that I, happened later. I thought you were going to say this is before the big President Taft bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually after the President yeah, Taft bathtub. Yeah, you just put the hippo in the Taft tub? <laughs> um, he sent it to the National Zoo, which at the time, zoos were oriented around the idea of, of getting exotic specimens. Uh, they were considered progressive because they didn't kill them and stuff them. Right. We're, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt may shoot a panda, but we're going to put it in a cement box and have you throw peanuts at it through bars. Right. They were considered, I guess, uh, progressive, but zoos did not have a conservationist angle at the time. The premise was find an exotic animal, put it in a box so people can look at it and hold it there until it dies. Um, there weren't uh, captive breeding programs. Zoos were not meant to encourage the preservation of species because it was still thought that even, even post-passenger pigeon, it was still thought that animals were in a plenitude. Yeah, uh, today's zoos, in our days, zoos are very much, you know, try to portray themselves as wildlife conservation institutions who, as one little part of their mission, will let you see some of their animals behind glass. Isn't it sad that we have to do this, but these ones can't live in the wild? And that's really a change from what zoos used to do, which was just put a lion in a box and put it would, a lion in it a would box. be sad till it died. Um, and in fact, I, I visited the Madrid zoo as late as 1994 and it from 95 and it still kept, uh, gorillas in a cement box and the Spanish were pounding on the glass and mocking the gorilla and the gorilla was throwing its feces back at them. It was really an unhappy scene. Is so it, is this the kind of thing where even, you know, the dispossessed underprivileged parts of society need to feel superior to someone. And if you can't find a, a, an immigrant group to, to spit on, you grab a, you, you grab go a, to the zoo and yell uh, at a gorilla, yeah, grab a lion and stick it in a box and go take that. At least I'm not a gorilla pond. Um, yeah, and I think that conservation angle to zoos increases as the wealth of the country increases. Spain in 1994 was not the wealthy economic powerhouse it is now, and mm -hmm. I imagine zoos there have have uh, been transformed. Is uh, is this what President Coolidge would do with his other pets? You know, uh, he didn't send his dogs and canaries right. <laughs> to the Washington <laughs> Zoo. Here you go, we got another collie. But he, you know, people would give him, I, I see that he was given a pair of lion cubs, which he named Tax Reduction and Budget Bureau. Uh, my sense is that those were named, bef uh, they were named and then given to him as like, lol. Is it like uh, lobbyists? Yeah. Here's a lion cub named Tax Reduction, wink, wink. Yeah, it's a, that's a 1920s joke that isn't quite Dorothy Parker level. Like, uh, It's the kind of thing you could see happening still today, because it's like politics level funny, where it's like, the president has decided to name the turkeys uh, tax <laughs> yeah. and spend and, uh, you know. Right. Uh, Ku Klux Klan normalization. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get so many angry letters from our viewers that do not uh, share my political spectrum and are like, why does this podcast have to be politicized? Why can't you guys stick to what you normally do? Tell jokes about wallabies from the 20s. Yeah, I'm sorry. Listen, listen, listeners. We're all just... People on a big blue marble in space, I don't want you to feel marginalized by the fact that I think my politics are correct. <laughs> uh, so Coolidge sends it to the National Zoo, and the National Zoo... Uh, Has to take it because he's the president. That's right. But also, they're thrilled to get at this pygmy hippopotamus, Super which no, rare. no one's seen before. And, it, and for a time, I think it's the most expensive animal 
the most valuable animal rather at the national zoo. And he is a fun guy. He, Billy is like a frolicsome, like a uh, neat little water horse to go watch at the zoo. Uh, does he cavort more than uh, like when I see the hippos at our zoo here, they're just kind of in the water blowing bubbles. And then occasionally they'll walk out of the water and lie down. Yeah. He's a cavorter. Um, oh, man, I love it when an animal cavorts. Have you ever been to the, uh, the Woodland Park Zoo when they feed pumpkins to the hippos? I have. It's so fun. They love pumpkins. The hippos at the Woodland Park Zoo are right by a rock dedicated to Jimi Hendrix. Have you ever yep, seen it? Yep. I think what KZOK or some, some station put up a, a rock dedicated to Jimi Hendrix, which is uh, just, very appropriate. Did he love the hippos? No, but it's rock. Oh, it is a, a rock. It's a, a rock. Wait, is that the joke? I hope not. <laughs> talk about talk about not up to the standards of Dorothy Parker. Uh, but so uh, Billy cavorts, and eventually they find a uh, a friend for Billy because although they are antisocial, they do mate in monogamous pairs. And so, so that's me as well. That's right. You are antisocial, but have uh, but I managed to mate a monogamous pair. That's right. And they found another pygmy hippo, even though they're rare. They found a pygmy hippo by the name of Hannah, and Hannah came, and they thought, "Why don't we see if we can make more?" pygmy hippos. Let's see if these two will, uh, will actually do the mating. They hit it off. Portion of the mating. And they did, uh, in 1931, they had a, a baby which died very shortly after due to what was described as maternal neglect. Is that a euphemism? It's just that the mom was not interested uh, in the baby and the baby died and that was considered quite a tragedy. And then she had a second baby, which also died very young again, due to maternal neglect. And then a third child, I guess you would say child, a third offspring. Uh, what are hip, uh, calves, I think. A third calf, uh, calf, which she killed by rolling over on it, crushed wow. it. Wow. So we're doing fat jokes now. And well, and no, no, no. It's not I'm, cool, John. No, it's not cool. But she literally. No, she just, it's a, she's a hippo and she didn't, she didn't mind to not kill her own child by rolling over. She doesn't seem like a great mom. No, and in fact, that was, she was roundly criticized in the press at the time <laughs> as like, she is a bad mom. Can you imagine writing those editorials? Listen, Thumbs somebody. Thumbs down to <laughs> Hannah, the pygmy hippo mom at the National Zoo. But they didn't, uh, they didn't have, again, zoos had no history or culture of animal husbandry, so they didn't know what to do. They weren't sure, like, how do you train a mother yeah, I hippo? Mean, today you'd have a bunch of keepers who would, you know, keep an eye on the baby and bottle feed it if necessary. And, and back then it was just like, well, let's hope she doesn't sit on the, the fourth one. Right. Well, and then they hit on the novel idea, which was that they were, uh, her hippo enclosure was literally in the lion house. Well, no wonder she's stressed. And so here she is having babies and all day long, just listening to the roar of neighboring lions who are infuriated at being, uh, having jelly beans thrown at them. Maybe she just doesn't want to raise a kid in that kind of world, you know? That's exactly right. She's like, why would I bring a child into this world? Uh, so they moved her to a gentler environment and she had a fourth child, which survived. And she was a relaxed and natural mother. And she and Billy loved their baby very much. You really let me go to town on Hannah before revealing that she was having all these babies in the lion house. Well, and that, because in the time, nobody could figure out what her problem was. <laughs> Why is she so tripped out? Why is this hippo so agitated? The lions here are happy. Roar! And I'm sure the lions were smelling the pygmy hippo and thinking sure. like, wow. Baby hippo. Wow. Uh, so... Now, suddenly, uh, William Johnson Hippopotamus was a very successful breeding hippo. and uh, hippo. And in the way, in the natural way, when you're a successful breeder, uh, the, um, the National Zoo found him another mate, a hippo by the name of Matilda, who also he successfully bred, and she happily raised children. And William Johnson Hippopotamus uh, ended up siring 23 calves, in the course of his life, uh, 13 of which survived. And, and many of whom were named Gumdrop, I see. So they, they were not very imaginative, which seems strange given what a literary culture we portrayed uh, people of this time to be. They just stopped naming the animals in any interesting way and named them Gumdrops 1 through 18. It's like the Simpsons cats. Yeah. <laughs> 
I wonder if this is something more in our age where uh, we've kind of fetishized the births of baby animals at zoos because, you know, in general, we have less kids and cute babies around, but maybe in yeah. the 1920s when everybody had six kids under four underfoot at all times. But they weren't. You didn't, nobody cares about a cute baby hippo. You didn't typically name all of your children Thomas. Like, I, oh, and this is Thomas Seven. I'm just saying the public, if you're George Foreman, <laughs> I guess I'm true. saying if the public, maybe the public is less delighted by another new hippo because there's just cute babies everywhere back then. I mean, by the time you have 23 babies, I guess the, the bloom is off the rose. And we typically, you know, have contests when a panda is born or when uh, something super fascinating like a pygmy hippo. Although I don't, I don't recall the last time there was a contest in the newspaper to name a baby hyena or, <laughs> you know, a uh, ferret or whatever, I guess is in zoos now spider. Um, so he was the most successful breeding hippo and actually began the, I mean, he, he kicked off the idea that zoos were, institutions that where animals would be bred populations would be uh sustained in zoos rather than uh, as their habitat was threatened in their in their natural environment uh population would survive by breeding them in zoos and then transferring their progeny to other zoos right because you can't have 23 you know gumdrop the 23rd in roman numerals you know you don't have room or an audience for 23 baby hippos. So you send it to the Cincinnati zoo or That's you right. send it to the Charlotte, North Carolina zoo. And suddenly everybody gets to see pygmy hippos. It's like Cain and Abel. Um, the first two humans, uh, when it was time to mate, they just went and found wives in the neighboring villages. <laughs> uh, and so, so uh, they did import another male hippo to start breeding with William and Matilda and Hannah's children. But, very uh, confusingly and unusually of all of the children of William Johnson hippopotamus, only one was male. Really? The rest were female. And it is, uh, you know, scientists like understand that. That's a thing. Some people just have the genes to have some dads have the genes to have more daughters. No, but that animals who are in stressful situations are more likely to have a female oh. than a male. I wonder what, what's the evolutionary advantage of that? Well, I think it, adding more males to the population maybe destabilizes it. Yeah. I think if you have, if you have all female children and inbreeding isn't a concern of yours, you can continue the population more readily than if you have a bunch of boys who are just fighting for dominance and mm. trying to, because it's much, it takes much longer. I mean, a, a, a boy hip, pygmy hippopotamus can impregnate a lot of different females in a short amount of time. Oh yeah. But a f female hippopotamus can only have a baby a year, uh, even when they're really cooking like Hannah and Matilda. I don't actually know what the gestation period of a hippopotamus is, but I bet it's long. It's yeah, it's a couple hundred days. Mm. So now uh, the vast majority of pygmy hippopotamuses in captivity are the scions of Bill, Billy. Hannah and, and Matilda. They're descended Billy. from Billy and one or more gumdrops. That's right. And what happened to Billy? Well, how long did well, what's a what's a hippopotamus's lifespan? I don't even know. So Billy was born some indeterminate time in the twenties, and he lived until nineteen fifty-five. He outlived Coolidge. He outlived Coolidge. He outlived <laughs> Edison. He outlived Henry Ford. Probably Dorothy Parker. Uh, he did, uh, I think. Well, wait a minute. How long did Dorothy Parker live? This is important knowledge. He probably drank a little less. No, she lived in 1967. Oh, so Dorothy Parker. She lived Parker. to see that hippo in a cold, cold grave. Boom. But you know what? Uh, Billy had a lot more children than Dorothy Parker le left in the world. And I don't recall her leaving any great jokes when Billy the hippo died. So who gets the last laugh now, Dorothy? And that concludes Billy the Pygmy Hippo. Entry 122.jb4024, certificate number 47159 in the omnibus. Listeners, we hope that pygmy hippos are not extinct in your time, but that social media is. In our day, we were avid practitioners of the art form. Mm -hmm. To it, our discredit. Yes, me to give the gifts of light and knowledge to the world, and uh, John to complain about muffler shops. That's right. Super mad at various different uh, uh, companies, including, I guess, most recently I yelled at Lyft. I yelled at Lyft because their app was sending up notifications on my phone that I didn't request. 
This is the modern version of the uh, just the old person writing crackpot letters to his local paper. I was so mad at the power company. What happened to <laughs> High and Lois? <laughs> that is a joke really targeted to a very small uh, segment of our listenership. Dear Jeffy Lou. <laughs> uh, no, so you could find us, uh, you know, complaining about all kinds of brands uh, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick and our important academic project was at Omnibus Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We uh, answered email from all interested parties at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. And we supported the uh, doings of like-minded enthusiasts, the Futurelings, at a Facebook fan group uh, called Futurelings. That's right. Uh, Listeners, uh, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, do not at me. But also, I'm sure in the future there there will be, just as we have posited, there will be a utopian future. In the future, conservatives and liberals will come back together, probably not in the center, but on the opposite side where radicals and uh, reactionaries meet in the in the middle. We just did a glowing show about a Republican president. Maybe we're going to bring about this new golden age. That's right. Maybe we are the Nixons who go to China. Maybe this is the only entry of the omnibus that the National Review will review. 70 years from now, people will, instead of uh, the Nixon goes to China metaphor, people will talk about the Trump goes to North Korea metaphor. And they will, no, and they will say, only omnibus could go to Coolidge. <laughs> the second rehabilitation of Calvin Coolidge in our modern age. Um, we have no idea whether this uh, show will be our last or whether we will do tens of thousands of these shows. But if this is our last show, we hope that, uh, what, well, I mean, what am I even trying to say? If this is our last show, we hope it isn't. <laughs> if, we, if this is our last show, we're sorry. There's probably not going to be an appendix or an index yeah. because we died shortly after yeah. recording. This. If, there's, if this is our last show, I'm never going to pay off my debt. I'm going to die owing the banks a lot of money, but hopefully, like the end of Fight Club, they'll all be gone, too. Too soon. You're just going to imagine Jiffy Lube after Jiffy Lube just collapsing as you stand by a window gloating. All the the towns in Southern California that were built by Lyft (laughs) all go out of business. Um, If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.